Chapter 9. Building Cities of Zion and Temples of God, Abraham, Ishmael, and Isaac for All Mankind. Build a house for boarding, a house that strangers may come from afar to lodge therein, and build a house to my name for the Most High to dwell therein, that I may reveal mine ordinances therein unto my people. Doctrine and Covenants 124, 22-23, 27, and 40. Dealing with the King of Gerar. The morning after the great destruction, according to Genesis, Abraham hurried back to the spot where he had stood and pleaded for Sodom, and as he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and the whole area of the plain, he could only see smoke over the land rising like the flumes of a kiln. Of a kiln. Then, adds the Joseph Smith translation, God spake unto Abraham, saying, I have remembered Lot, and sent him out of the midst of the overthrow, that thy brother might not be destroyed, and Abraham was comforted. Lot had not been mentioned when Abraham had negotiated with God over the fate of Sodom. In fact, the Lord had gone beyond what he had agreed to by not only rescuing Lot and his family, but also by now comforting Abraham. Such was the friendship between the Almighty and Abraham, and such was Abraham's friendship with his fellow men. It is also the first of several instances in the Old Testament when a person or an entire group is preserved through the protective power of the righteous individual of a righteous individual. Abraham was comforted with respect to Lot by judging from the depth of his pleading for the Sodomites just the day before. There would have been anguish in his heart at this moment when he gazed on the smoke of their destruction written in the sky. For although God spoke to Abraham to reassure him about Lot, no word is reported in reply by Abraham as he stares in silence, overcome at the destruction of the neighbors for whom he loved. Like his descendant Mormon, an admirer of Abraham, viewing the fallen Nephites, Abraham's soul would have been rent with anguish because of the slain, who had rejected that Jesus who stood with open arms. Those same open arms had welcomed Abraham at the throne and would have welcomed Abraham's neighbors into the gospel if they had only been willing to repent. If the region had had a newspaper, the headline might have well been, as two modern writers imagine, Sodom and Gomorrah wiped out in worse disaster since flood. Even so, the region without Sodom surely would have was a safer and happier place, improving the moral quality of life for Abraham and his community of Zion. Why then, as Genesis relates without explanation and with no command of God to do so, does Abraham suddenly move? Tradition tells that the overthrow had dramatically altered traffic patterns in the region, making it impossible for Abraham to offer his customary hospitality. And seeing that travelers stopped coming and his gold and silver did not diminish, he was grieved and distressed, exclaiming, Why should hospitality cease from my house? In addition, noted the 19th century Russian rabbi Malbim, Abraham desired to move about rather than dwell in one place in order to spread the knowledge of and belief in God. Abraham's life illustrates Joseph Smith's statement that a man filled with the love of God is not content with blessing his family alone, but ranges throughout the whole world, anxious to bless the whole human race. This, then, would be yet another occasion in Abraham's life when, as remembered in Jewish tradition, his preaching was sought by others who thirsted for God's word, influencing him to move on to other areas to further spread the true faith. So instead of simply relaxing and retiring peacefully and graciously amid his substantial wealth, Abraham does exactly the opposite of what most men would do. He moves to a place where he could again use his time, talents, and temporal wealth to bless his fellow men and preach the gospel and continue to build Zion. His motives were not money or comfort, but rather love and sacrifice. Abraham and Sarah moved south to a mountain region, not far from Gerar. 
a powerfully fortified city and one of the biggest settlements in southern Canaan, another apt location to preach the gospel and bless mankind. The king of Gerar was Abimelech, who soon heard of Sarah's dazzling beauty and had brought, and had her brought to the palace to become his queen. When she asserted that she was Abraham's sister, the king legally married her and heaped royal rewards on Abraham, looking forward to consummate the marriage. In the abbreviated Genesis account, it is not clear how long she stayed in the palace, although Nachmanides states that it was many days. Whatever the exact duration, it was long enough for Abimelech to experience a sickness that prevented him from approaching Sarah, and long enough for the women of Abimelech's household to suffer from an inability to conceive which took effect from the time that Sarah entered the palace. At some point, Abimelech had a dream in which he was told he was a dead man because he had stolen another man's wife. Protesting that he had done so innocently, God answered that he knew that, that, he knew that and had thus prevented Abimelech from sinning against God. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet. The first occurrence of this word in the Old Testament... And he will pray, or intercede, for you, and you shall live. But if you do not restore her, you know that you will surely die, you and all that are yours. As Pharaoh had once done, Abimelech called Abraham and restored to him his wife while bestowing on her a royal robe, and on Abraham an abundance of sheep, oxen, slaves, and a sizable payment of silver. The king then asked for forgiveness and pleaded with Abraham to intervene to save the endangered king and his kingdom. Thus had God arranged it, so that only by Abraham's intercession would God save Abimelech. Rabbinic tradition remembers that when Abimelech asked for forgiveness, Abraham forgave him with a full heart. Then, according to Genesis, Abraham paid to God, and God healed Abimelech, prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed fast all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Jewish tradition even insists that Abimelech's wife had previously been unable to bear a child, but Abraham's prayer allowed her to do so. His prayer is remembered in Jewish teaching as an illustration on the principle that he who prays on his neighbor's behalf himself, being in need of the very thing, is himself answered first. Thus did another king of the world come to know the superior power of Abraham and his God, so great an impact did the event have on the king that he later approached Abraham to enter into a treaty of perpetual alliance. For declare the king, God is with you in all that you do. Now therefore swear to me. The well where the event took place was then called the well of the oath, or Beersheba. And here Abraham would reside. Perhaps the entire encounter with Abimelech was another divinely orchestrated opportunity to open the doors of the gospel to a kingdom by first convincing the king. And for Abraham's forgiving and praying for Abimelech, the patriarch is remembered in Jewish tradition as an exemplar unto all. The Joy of Isaac In answer to Abraham's prayer that the curse of the barrenness be lifted from Abimelech's house, it was also listed, lifted from his own house. As Genesis reports, the Lord visited, or singled out, or showed favor to, or remembered Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did unto Sarah as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bare Abraham a son. Her conception had been just several months following the visit of the three messengers, and had occurred according to Jewish tradition on the first day of the new year, Rosh Hashanah, the day when God remembers all Israel. In synagogues on Rosh Hashanah, the story of God's remembering Sarah is still chanted. For Sarah, it was the close 
the close of an incredibly lengthy ordeal of patience, perseverance, and trusting in the Lord, a rabbinical text states that the Almighty rewarded Sarah as he spoke these words, You put your trust in me by your life. I will remember you. Thirty-seven long years have elapsed since God's promise to Abraham of the glorious posterity. Thirty-seven years since Abraham and Sarah had first rejoiced in the expectation of the fulfillment of that promise. Why the decades of waiting and the long trial of faith? The rabbis said that it was to increase Sarah's joy when she was finally blessed with children and to deepen her and Abraham's dependency on each other and on the Lord. In the words of Hugh Nibley, it was Abraham and Sarah who restored the state of our primal parents, she as well as he, for in the perfect balance they maintained, he is the dependent on her as she on him. And when both sides of the equation are reduced, the remainder on both sides is only a great love. Such love had seen them through the long years of waiting for fulfillment of the divine promises, the long period during which, in the words of Kierkegaard, Abraham had fought with that cunning power which invents everything, with that alert enemy which never slumbers, with that old man who outlives all things. He had fought with time and preserved his faith. His aged wife, well past the season of childbearing, now miraculously bore a son in defiance of the laws of nature. What was beyond hope by natural process, noted church father John Chrysostom, came to be not by human process, but by divine grace. Never in the history of the world, says the Perk de Rabbi Eliezer, had a 90-year-old woman given birth. Why did the Lord of life, the creator of all, so arrange it? Why not grant the son of promise to Sarah during those many years when she could have conceived normally without divine intervention? The answer would become apparent many centuries later, when, as Church Father Ambrose observed, an aged woman who was sterile brought Isaac to birth according to God's promise so that we may believe that God has power to bring it about that even virgin may give birth. Sarah's miraculous conception, intentionally arranged by the Almighty, as a miracle that had never been seen since the creation is surely one of the clearest similitudes of the birth of him who would fulfill the promise to Abraham and Isaac that in their seed all nations of the earth would be blessed. But there was yet another miracle, according to Soren Kierkegaard, a miracle not of biology but of faith. In an outward respect, The marvel consists of the fact that it came to pass according to their expectation, but in a deeper sense, the miracle of faith consists in the fact that Abraham and Sarah were young enough to wish, and that faith had preserved their wish and therewith their youth. He accepted the fulfillment of the promise, he accepted it by faith, and it came to pass according to the promise and according to his faith. Then there was joy in Abraham's house. Jewish tradition remembers that Sarah likewise was overwhelmed with sublime happiness when while the Joseph Smith translation of Genesis reports her exclaiming that God has made me to rejoice and also all that know me will rejoice with me. The Hebrew word here, translated as rejoice, can also be translated as laugh, as most translations of Genesis do. God has brought me laughter, Sarah exclaims, and everyone who hears will laugh with me. She then adds, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would suckle children? Why did she say children instead of a child? Because, according to one Jewish interpretation, she was keenly cognizant that this was the covenant son by whom God would multiply into a host of covenant people, a future foreshadowed not only by her words but by her very experience. 
In a passage clearly alluding to Sarah, the prophet Isaiah described the future of Latter-day Israel. Isaiah 54, 1-3, Sing, O barren, one who did not bear, burst into song and shout, enlarge the sight of your tent, and let the curtains of your habitation be stretched out. For you will spread out the right and to the left, and your descendants will possess the nations. It is the Latter-day Zion that Isaiah describes using their foremother Sarah as a prototype. Isaiah used the story of Sarah's barrenness, explains one scholar, as a paradigm for Zion and for the future of the people of Israel. For Israel, the real import of the barren matriarch is not in the past, but in the future. What God did for Sarah is evidence of what he will do for his exiled people, so that the significance of Sarah's story is in its relation to Zion's story. Like Abraham, then, Sarah foreshadows the future of her posterity as she holds her beloved infant whose features, according to Jewish tradition, were very much like those of Abraham, and whose name memorializes the inexpressible joy of both his parents. His name can be interpreted, notes the Midrash, as law went forth to the world or a gift was made to the world, a foreshadowing of the latter days when out of Zion shall go forth the law to bless the nations through the seed of Isaac and Abraham. Sarah's expression of joy would be repeated by her descendant Mary in contemplation of her own miraculous conception of the Son, who would bless all nations. Sarah's Magnificat, observed Christopher Wadsworth, is a prelude to that of Mary, whose faith perhaps was excited and quickened by a remembrance of what had been done by God for Sarah, and by his promise to Abraham and to his seed, to which Mary herself refers. Sarah held her held in her arms as she well knew the son of the promise, the future blessing of the world. She feels that she is the mother of sons, mother of an entire nation. But in it was the joyous present that now filled her great soul as she tenderly embraced and, as Genesis specifically points out, nursed her son. Thanks to the youthful rejuvenation she had experienced, Sarah's were the feelings that only a new mother can fathom, but even more, for her joy ran as deep as the longing of decades and as deep as her sorrow at once having to abandon the idea of ever being a mother, thinking she had misunderstood the divine promises to her husband. And if Sarah has, had been physically rejuvenated, so was Abraham. God restored him his youth, reports the Midrash Rabbah. The marvelous event would later be commemorated with coinage showing on one side an old man and an old woman, and on the other a young couple. Thus were their bodies renewed by the Spirit, the promise made to all who are faithful in obtaining and magnifying the higher priesthood. The promise may include the great renewal beyond the grave when the righteous in the words of Brigham Young will be clothed upon with all the beauty of resurrected saints. A Jewish midrash foretells that in the world to come, every righteous person will be physically rejuvenated and enjoy renewed youth. Should you wonder at this, consider Abraham and Sarah when God rejuvenated them to have a son. So too will it be with the righteous in the world to come. Accordingly, just as Isaac was born to Abraham and Sarah in their old ages, so the righteous will be restored to their splendor of their youth in the world to come. With the renewal of Abraham and Sarah came in the words of Philo, a son of their own, a reward for their high excellence, a gift from God, the bountiful, surpassing all their hopes. It was the beginning of the real life of Sarah, according to the Jewish tradition, the fulfillment of all her faith and dreams. The news of Isaac's birth must have been heralded quickly, as imagined by a modern writer. Swift runners reached to the outmost posts of Abraham's pasture, 
land with the glad news. Abraham had a son. The princess had borne Abraham a son. In Christian tradition, the birth of Isaac is one of the clearest types of the birth of the Savior, according to Christopher Wadsworth. Isaac's birth is yet another resemblance to him whose birth is the cause of joy to all. As Isaac's birth and name were foretold in advance, as he was conceived only by miraculous means, as his coming into the world was brought great joy and rejoicing, and is made possible the blessing of all mankind, so would the birth of Isaac's descendant Jesus Christ, the Redeemer of the world, the Beloved Son. Abraham exceedingly loved Isaac, says Josephus. In fact, as a modern commentator notes, it is doubtful that ever a son was born who was more loved than Isaac. His father and mother, no doubt, rehearsed over and over again the great promises of God that centered in him. And just as the angel had predicted, Abraham did teach his son to keep the way of the Lord. The book of Jasher tells that Abraham taught Isaac the way of the Lord, to know the Lord, and the Lord was with him. Or in the words of President Spencer W. Kimball, Abraham built a strong spiritual reservoir for his son Isaac, a reservoir that never leaked dry. But the parental instruction of Isaac was as much a joint effort as was the mutual faith that brought about his birth in the first place. Jewish tradition remembers that Sarah nurtured him, empowering him to become Abraham's covenantal heir. For his part, Isaac was, according to first century Jewish sources, not only a child of great bodily beauty, but also excellence of soul, and showing a perfection of virtues beyond his years. He won even more the affection and love of his parents by the practice of every virtue and zeal for the worship of God. No wonder Abraham cherished for him a great tenderness, being devoted to his son with a fondness which no words can express. Ishmael and his Temple A few years hence, to celebrate the weaning of Isaac, Abraham put on what Genesis calls a great feast or a great banquet. It was a sumptuous spread, a lavish offering, open to all, and attended by a great multitude, including, as Jasher reports, all the great people of the land who came to eat and drink and rejoice. The event was also a harbinger, says Jewish tradition, of things to come, for the Holy One was to make a great feast for the righteous on the day he shows his love for Isaac's descendants. It is the same feast that Latter-day Saints look forward to, as foretold in Latter-day Revelation. The festivities that day for young Isaac were a summit of joy, for the aged Abraham, who now had two sons whom he loved profoundly, and as Jewish sources says, equally. As Abraham interacted with both during the celebration, Jubilees reports that he rejoiced and blessed God because he had seen his sons and had not died childless. And he remembered the words God had spoken to him on the day Lot parted from him, and he rejoiced because the Lord had given him offspring on the earth to possess it. And he blessed and praised the Creator of all things, for Abraham it was... Today, the greatest and most fulfilling day of his life. Then, suddenly, in the midst of the joyous celebration, one brief communication from Sarah turned Abraham's intense joy to intense grief. She had seen Ishmael doing something, which the King James translators reckoned as mocking. The translation is not inaccurate as it is unfortunate, as shown and noted by biblical scholar E.A. Spicer, and is corrected by modern translations, which reads plain or laughing. A translation required by the Septuagint, which adds here, with Isaac, her son. Jubilees describes the scene as follows. Sarah saw Ishmael playing and dancing and Abraham rejoicing with great joy. Her reaction, as reported in Genesis, was to declare to Abraham, Cast out that slave woman and her son, for the son of that slave shall not share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. 
Sarah had received endless criticism throughout the ages for this seemingly harsh and heartless demand, but one Jewish tradition tells a different story. God looked into Sarah's heart and saw no hatred for Ishmael there, but saw that she was motivated solely by her passion to nurture Isaac to his full potential, and not merely motivated, but actually inspired according to Jewish sages. Her words to Abraham arose not out of impulse or anger, but she was acting under divine inspiration so that, according to the learned Rashi, Sarah's voice is the voice of prophecy. Sarah well knew of God's promises to Abraham repeated over decades about the covenant race that would bless the world, and knew that her son Isaac was appointed to be the pro their progenitor. She had even foreseen the history of her covenant descendants on whose behalf she now acted, and as the instrument of God she was now proposing... What she was now proposing would also be for the benefit and blessing of Ishmael and his descendants, whose destiny had already been prophesied to Hagar. Even so, Sarah's words came as a thunderbolt to Abraham, who, as Genesis tells, was greatly distressed or troubled, very greatly. He was tormented, says Ephraim the Syrian, for he loved Ishmael just as he loved Isaac. In fact, Jewish tradition remembers that all of the trials that Abraham had to undergo up to that time, none was so hard to bear as this. How could he drive out people who were part of him, who were dear to him, who were dependent on him and helpless without him? That troubled night, as Genesis reports, God told Abraham to implement Sarah's wish, but tradition gives a slightly expanded vision of that incident. In that night, the Holy One said to Abraham, Abraham, dost thou not know that Sarah was appointed to be to thee for a wife from her mother's womb? She is thy companion and the wife of thy covenant. All that Sarah has spoken she has utterly she has uttered truthfully, for she also is a prophetess. Therefore let it not be grievous in thine eyes. Genesis records that Abraham simply arose the next morning and expelled Hagar and Ishmael into the desert, parsimoniously providing them with only little bread and a bottle of water, for which Abraham had been severely criticized. But other Jewish sources insist that the highly abbreviated Genesis account fails to communicate the reality that Abraham provisioned them with well within necessities for their journey, including gold and silver, and then actually escorted them on their way. Islamic sources from the descendants of Ishmael, who was being expelled, unanimously remember that Abraham did in fact accompany Hagar and Ishmael well into the desert. Islamic tradition further describes that what transpired when the moment came for Abraham to return, seeing that Abraham intended to depart, Hagar asked Abraham if God had commanded him to do this. When he answered in the affirmative, this remarkable woman declared her faith in God and God's servant Abraham by courageously stating that she knew that God would take care of them. She was, in the words of a modern Muslim scholar, willing to do this for God. While for his part, Abraham is enough of a believer to say, I will s submerge myself and rely on God. It was yet another irony in the life of Abraham that although he would have instantly given his life for his loved ones, he was now forced to leave them behind in the wilderness in obedience to God, to whom, according to the Quran, he prayed fervently for their protection. Fill the hearts of some among men with love for them. It was a prayer of faith born of personal experience, recalling the time when a young man, when as a young man himself, he had been imprisoned without food and water, but miraculously provided for. Hence, Abraham is only providing them an experience that he himself had already lived through. Abraham then expressed his own love for both of his sons. Praise be to God, who has given me Ishmael and Isaac. Abraham obediently left, although, as Cyril of Alexandria reports, he took it very hard. Hagar obediently remained, but wept. 
When the provisions ran out, God sent an angel to protect and provide for them. Genesis recounts that God was with the lad, and the Genesis Rabbah adds that the blessing of God rested upon him and all his household. They were prospered, says Jewish tradition, in answer to Abraham's continuing prayer. Abraham prayed to the Almighty on his son's behalf, and Ishmael's house was filled with every good thing and every blessing. The Quran describes Ishmael as one who was faithful in promise, and he was a messenger, a prophet. And he enjoyed, enjoined on his people prayer and almsgiving, and was one in whom his Lord was well pleased. An early Jewish text likewise pays to Ishmael the ultimate compliment of being one of the righteous. As Ishmael's descendants remember, Abraham returned to visit Ishmael many times. On one of those occasions, according to the Quran, Abraham enlisted Ishmael's help to build the temple, or Kaaba, a place to which people might repair again and again, and a sanctuary. The pattern for this temple was shown to Abraham, says Islamic tradition, by an angel. While the site itself was divinely designated to Abraham by a cloud or a wind, Abraham and Ishmael worked together, as described in the Quran. Thus did we command Abraham and Ishmael, Purify my temple for those who will walk around it and those who will abide near it in meditation, and those who will bow down and prostrate themselves in prayer. And lo, Abraham prayed, O my sustainer, make this a land secure and grant its people fruitful sustenance, such as them as believe in God and the last day. And when Abraham and Ishmael were raising the foundations of the temple, they prayed, O our sustainer, accept thou this from us, make us surrender ourselves, or make us both submissive unto thee, and make out of our offspring a community that shall surrender itself or be submissive unto thee, and impart unto them revelation as well as wisdom, and cause them to grow in purity. The temple for Ishmael, built according to Islam at Mecca, would share a number of similar motifs with the Jewish temple at Jerusalem, but it is the temple at Mecca, the Holy Kaaba, which remains to this day the longing of Muslims worldwide who are expected at least once in their lifetime to make the sacred pilgrimage in which men don white robes, women cover their heads, Satan is cast out, and all walk seven times the circuit around the Kaaba, all following this pattern according to Islam of that set by Abraham and Ishmael, in order to attain purity and prepare for the very presence of God. The seven circuits recall the seven ages of the temporal earth, and in the Lord's one eternal round. Islam further tells that God commanded Abraham to summon all mankind to the Kaaba, and still today, when faithful Muslims go there, they do so in response to Abraham's summons as they arrive at the famous place of prayer, the place of Abraham, which is situated near the Kaaba. Three different times, the pilgrims raise their hands to heaven and say, Here I am, Lord. Near the Kaaba, they also see the famous black stone with a footprint, believed to be that of Abraham. In their most sacred of all ceremonies, Muslims literally believe themselves to be following the footsteps of their father Abraham. The seven circuits echo the architectural pattern of the cosmic city of the ancient Near East, often constructed with seven circuits or with seven tiered temple towers made in the image of the seven cosmic spheres. Seven is also, of course, the number of the days of the creation, as well as the number of millennial periods in which the Earth's, of the Earth's temporal existence, all of which Abraham had seen in vision. And as to the shape of the circle itself, it is the shape of facsimile too, representing what he nearly called one eternal round. Muslim tradition holds that in erecting the Kaaba, the Kaaba, Abraham was also laying the foundations of a sacred city, 
When Abraham offered the dedicatory prayer, there was no town existing near the Kaaba. There existed only the house of God. So Abraham prayed that in the wildest of wildernesses there might grow up a town, and that the town might become a place of security, affording peace to mankind. For he wished it to be the abode of the righteous only. If Ishmael must grow to manhood far removed from Abraham, Abraham could not be content with first establishing his son and laying the foundations for a Zion community with a temple at its center. Abraham would frequent, would return frequently, for he longed for his son Ishmael. Four gates and a cosmic city at Beersheba. Even Abraham had his detractors, and back in Beersheba, he found that they seized upon this latest episode in his domestic life to criticize him. If, we, if he were a righteous man, they complained, would he have thrust away his firstborn son? Years before, while still childless, his critics had charged, if he were a righteous man, he would not have, would he not have begotten children? Many had been, and would be the occasions when, in obeying God, Abraham would risk his reputation for righteousness. It was one of the many ironies of his life, and a sacrifice he was willing to make. It is also an indication of the depth of his testimony, for, as explained in the lectures on faith, for as a for a man to lay down his all, his character and reputation, his honor and applause, and his good name among men, his houses, his lands, his brothers and sisters, his wife and children, and even his own life also, counting all things but filth and dross for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, requires more than mere belief or supposition that he is doing the will of God, but actual knowledge, realizing that when these sufferings are ended, he will enter into eternal rest and be a partaker of the glory of God. Armed with that knowledge, Abraham proceeded to press forward, inviting all to the Savior and his Zion. At the various locations where Abraham dug wells, he called them by names that would call to mind the reality and goodness of God. By this he would arouse in the people an awareness of the truth by saying, Let us go and draw water from the well of the eternal God. The wells were a public necessity, and in this manner the people were initiated into a knowledge of the true God. But the center for his missionary efforts was his own residence, where he planted a lush garden containing vines and figs, pomegranates, and all kinds of choice fruits. As remembered in Jewish tradition, he made four gates for it, facing the four sides of the earth, east, west, north, and south, and he planted a vineyard therein. If a traveler came that way, he entered by the gate that faced him. And he sat in the grove and ate and drank until he was satisfied, and then he departed. For the house of Abraham was always open for all passers-by, and they came daily to eat and drink there. If one was hungry, he came to Abraham, and he would give him what he needed so that he might eat and drink and be satisfied. And if, he, and if one was naked and he came to Abraham, he would clothe him with the garments of the poor man's choice, and give him silver and gold, and make known to him the Lord, who had created him and set him on earth. After the wayfarers had eaten, they were in the habit of thanking Abraham for his kind entertainment of them, whereto he would reply, What ye give thanks unto me? Rather return thanks to your host, he who alone provides food and drink for all creatures. Then the people would say, Where is he? And Abraham would answer them and say, He is the ruler of heaven and earth. When the people heard such words, they would ask, How shall we return thanks to God and manifest our gratitude unto him? And Abraham would instruct them in how to praise and thank God. And the fame of Abraham the Hebrew spread far and wide, 
so that from all the corners of the earth, men, women, and children, all the lowly and oppressed, the needy and the miserable, the suffering and the downtrodden, the hungry and the naked, came to him to seek solace and help. All of them Abraham received with open arms. He fed and clothed them, comforted and consoled them, and wiped away their tears. And Sarah, his wife, was sharing in the charitable work of her aged husband. Indefatigably, she worked day and night. During the day, she assisted her husband and waited upon the travelers, offering them food and drink. And during the night, she worked assiduously and industriously, weaving with her own hands garments to cover the naked. Together, Abraham and Sarah served in this labor and love to provide food, drink, and companionship. In the visitor center designed to lift and bless people and bring them to Christ. It was also a great school in which uh, men were taught the true religion and gratitude to the Almighty God, and which apparently included a seminary for youth. Abraham's highest priority, of course, was his own son. Abraham wrote books about the greatness of God and taught them unto his son Isaac. Tradition further tells of an abundant spring of fresh water at Beersheba, recalling a similar spring at Hebron that Abraham used as a baptismal font. The blessing that Abraham conveyed to humanity was, according to the rabbis, associated with a pool, by means of which Abraham cleansed his fellow man and brought them nearer to God. It was nothing less than the ordinance of baptism for the remission of sins, following faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and repentance of sins. So trusted and respected was Abraham that people came to him and asked him to settle their disputes. Unlike most judges, however, he did not stop with merely ascertaining a fair resolution between the parties but would not let them go until they had made peace with each other, exhorting them to go in peace and love one another, and the Lord would love you and bless you always. Abraham's peacemaking helps explain why he received such blessings, for, as the Savior would explain, blessed are the peacemakers. Abraham's kindness was noised abroad far and wide, and guests seeking every manner of blessing visited him from the ends of the world and all parts of the earth, including all who were unhappy and all who were in despair. And Abraham welcomed them with joy and love. His example would be emulated by a branch of his Nephite descendants, who, in their efforts to qualify to sit down with Abraham in the kingdom of heaven, used the means that God had given them to liberally bless and comfort their fellow beings. It is the same mission and opportunity devolving on Abraham's latter-day descendants, who have received the restored gospel and are charged to bless all nations. We as a world church, with a world message and a world program, explained President Gordon B. Hinckley, and our whole course is designed to help people, to lift them, to strengthen them. Judaism would also remember Abraham's example, even the structure of his welcoming residence. Louis Ginsburg reported in the early 20th century that Eastern European Jews were still calling a house with many doors a house with Father Abraham's doors. But Abraham's four gates opening to the four points of the compass were apparently more than a hospitable architecture. Years earlier, he had viewed the promised land from the heights of Mount Hazor, and when he was lifted up for a bird's-eye view to apparently see the whole earth along all of its four cardinal points, Abraham's very birth had been heralded by a star that swallowed up the four stars at the four corners of heaven. And in facsimile 2 of the Book of Abraham, Abraham drew four figures standing next to each other, representing this earth and its four quarters a motif recurring throughout ancient civilizations and used to indicate a ruler's authority over all the earth. The king of Babylon, for example, bore the title the king of the four quadrants of the earth. Pharaoh was enthroned, facing in, all, in turn all four directions at his coronation. While at the ceremony celebrating the renewal of his kingship, an arrow was shot in the four directions, whereupon he made a ritual walk around the field and consecrated it four times. 
In the Egyptian Book of the Dead, the four quarters of Ra are to an extent the earth, but there may well be even more than geographic symbolism in Abraham's four quarters of the earth in facsimile too. For the purpose... For the perfectly perpendicular angles of Abraham's design might perhaps represent the exactness of his obedience to the covenants and commandments he had received. And with those commandments that God had given him had come his appointment to the cosmic kingship that all those other rulers falsely claimed and memorialized by constructing cosmic cities, following a pattern similar to what Abraham built at Beersheba. Their circular shape was divided into four quadrants representing the four quarters of the world, with a gate at each cardinal point. The circular shape of these cities reflected the sun's circuit in the heavens, so that the king claimed to be the ruler of all that which is encircled by the sun, again reminiscent of the shape of Abraham's own facsimile number two. Where did such concepts originate? The earliest evidence points directly to Enoch, who in restored scripture is remembered as a great city builder. As the seventh patriarchal ruler, he was remembered in Mesopotamian tradition as Enmedronki, a king of the city whose god was the solar deity. Additional solar associations are suggested by the number 365, the number of years that Genesis says Enoch walked with God before being taken, or the number of years in the Book of Moses says Enoch's city was in existence before God took it. In addition, the apocryphal Enoch literature makes much of the solar calendar. Enoch's city appears to be the pattern copied over and over by monarchs of the ancient world as they built their cosmic cities. A Temple in Zion But the most prominent feature of those cities, and located at the center, was always a temple, the largest, tallest, and most impressive building of the city. If all of this was patterned after Enoch's city, why does scripture not mention a temple there? The book of Moses does give an important clue when it relates that the Lord came and dwelt with his people. For the single most important function of an ancient temple was to be a house for the God, his dwelling place. But apparently the intent of the book of Moses is not to describe the buildings of the city of Zion, but rather the spiritual righteousness and harmony of the people. Again, reminiscent of the ancient cosmic city whose inhabitants are subject to the cosmic laws reflected in this city's layout. In the case of Enoch City, the inhabitants included all those who had accepted Enoch's preaching and had moved to Zion, or as John Taylor described them, were gathered together unto a place which they called Zion, and if gathered, then necessarily a build, to build a temple according to Joseph Smith, for the object of gathering in any age of the world is to always build a temple. Hence Brigham Young said that even though we have no account of it, Enoch must have had a temple and officiated therein. Since Brother Brigham's day, Enoch's texts have emerged that expressly refer to a temple among Enoch and his people, and relate that Enoch taught his sons to go to the temple. Enoch's cosmic city, built around a temple, was indeed the ancient pattern for many temple cities that would later spring up throughout the ancient Near East. Central to the theology of those temples was a recreation of the original paradise as seen, for example, in the Jerusalem temple, which was viewed as a paradise where the primal perfection of Eden is wonderfully preserved. The description calls to mind Enoch's city being translated to the terrestrial paradise where, according to Jubilees, Enoch was led into the Garden of Eden. It also calls to mind the lush garden that Abraham planted at Beersheba, described in Jewish tradition as the paradise at Beersheba, and referred to Nibli as Abraham's model Garden of Eden. The Zohar tells that Abraham restored the earth to its paradisical condition as the ground again blossomed in loveliness and all the powers of the earth were restored and displayed themselves. 
It was an echo of the first Edenic Zion, connected to the powers of heaven. One tradition tells that by planting his grove of trees to serve mankind, Abraham planted a tree for himself in heaven, which would produce the fruits of his reward. Calling to mind Abraham's similar metaphor, used for all the righteous who plant the seed of God's word. Would not Abraham's paradisical garden, so carefully laid out to mirror the cosmos, have had its temple? One of the sources cited by the famous medieval alchemist Nicholas Flamel expressly reports that Abraham did have a temple following the pattern of his forefathers. Having received the remaining temple ordinances from Melchizedek in his temple at Salem, Abraham now passed these on to the community of saints over whom he presided. According to Elder Bruce R. McConkie, from the days of Adam to the present, to the present, whenever the Lord has had a people on earth, temple and temple ordinances have been a crowning feature of their worship. My people are always commanded to build temples, the Lord says, for the glory, honor, and endowment of all the saints. These temples have been costly and elaborate buildings whenever the abilities of the people have permitted such. Abraham's temple at Beersheba would surely have been one of those most costly and elaborate of all, given the vast resources with which God had blessed him. At least part of his temple structure at Beersheba, an altar, is mentioned by Jubilees, which describes in some detail the many kinds of sacrifices Abraham made thereon as he celebrated the seven-day festival of tabernacles that his posterity would later follow. But the rabbis insisted that Abraham observed all the Mosaic laws, including those related to temple. According among the rabbinic texts making this assertion is Yoma, the Talmudic tractate describing in detail the all-important temple ritual of the Day of Atonement. Yoma emphasizes that our father Abraham kept the whole Torah, not just some of the laws and ordinances, but all of them, and his performance thereof was meticulous and exacting, according to ancient sources. Hence, as Hugh Nibley has pointed out, the works of Abraham center around the temple. Abraham was rebuilding the city of Zion on the earth following the ancient pattern of Enoch, even while the pretenders to Abraham's authority were building their imitations. Unlike those ostentatious monarchs, Abraham built no walled city or garrison castle or fortress, but an open facility with a door at each point of the compass, inviting all mankind to come and partake of the hospitality and learn of Zion. Most importantly, he built neither a palace nor throne for himself, but rather a temple for the throne of God. Abraham's entire resources were consecrated to the establishment of Zion. Foreshadowing the Future Descent of Zion The pattern of Abraham's cosmic city of Beersheba looked not only backward but also forward to the latter days, when, as Abraham had read in the patriarchal records, the Lord would gather his people from the four quarters of the earth to Zion or the New Jerusalem and would make bare his arm in saving them, and then dine with them in Enoch City that would return to the earth. If we have no architectural description of Enoch City as it was taken from the earth, we do have a description of it as it will return. And it is said in John's book of Revelation to be four square, with three gates at each point of the compass, for a total of twelve gates, one for each tribe of Israel. Abraham's twelve great-grandsons by Jacob Similarly, in 1 Enoch, Enoch describes heaven as having a similar distribution of 12 gates, three at each compass point. The 12 gates are co also correspond to Plato's cosmic city divided into 12 parts for 12 tribes. But it is the four-square structure that remains the critical feature, bespeaking its wholeness and lack of defect, for the square was one of those ancient symbols that conveyed the notion 
of divinely wrought perfection. Both architecturally and spiritually, Zion must be built on the principles of exactness and honor. Abraham had seen in vision the future descent of Enoch's glorious city of Zion, and the closer we look at what Abraham built at Beersheba, the more it reflects that city, not only as it was first built on earth, but also as it will come again when the earth will receive her paradisical glory, and when, as Brigham Young said, Zion will extend all over this earth. It will all be Zion. <laughs>